City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, and we're on air, City Limits, and it's... um it's the second, third, I don't know what it is. No, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. That's what it is. I've worked that one out. And therefore, we've got no specific subject. But we are going to be talking today to Amelia Young, who's um, with the Wilderness Society, about the, the uh, sustainable hardwood company in Gippsland, where uh, the uh, workers and the government, are, well, at least the company's screaming out about they need more trees to cut down, etc., and we've long argued whether it was actually sustainable anyway. The title says sustainable, but is it? And uh, Amelia will set us straight on that one, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, we've also, well, on that also, they're also campaigning for a, um, a new state forest down there, so we'll talk about that as well, so there's a fair bit to go on there. We had hoped to have Paddy Moriarty, who, uh, of course, those who enjoy the title know him as Professor Moriarty, and he is, but... Uh, <laughs> Paddy, um, Paddy, unfortunately, wasn't at his desk this morning. He always is, and it's, I think it's quite, um, well, it's quite a, quite selfish. I mean, quite quite irresponsible not to be there this morning when we rang, because we usually ring him in the morning and say, can you come on today? And he says, yes, and there we are. Anyway, we're going to, if he does get back to us at all, we're going to, we wanted to talk to him about the Finkel report and related matters. I'm Kevin Healy. Did I mention that? Andy Pritz over there pressing buttons. Hello. And Meg Kimber's a new voice this morning. Come in to test us out. Hi, <laughs> Probably will fail miserably. <laughs> um, but Meg, uh, welcome to City Davidson. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really good. happy to be here. Coming on. And a bit about yourself then. What are you... you um, yeah, I've just yeah. moved to Melbourne from Hobart in Tasmania. Yep. So I know I've certainly been um, exposed to a lot of um, controversy around forests and wood, so definitely curious to hear about that today. Yes. And um, just come up to Melbourne this year and started volunteering at 3CR, and next week I get to start my training. Right, and yeah. then you'll, you'll end up sitting where Andy's now sitting. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. <laughs> no, <laughs> you out of a job. I can assure you Andy won't, uh, won't break, be brokenhearted about that. In fact, he's been incredibly generous to keep coming in, so... Uh, that's wonderful. Look, I'll pour you. You want a cup of tea? You're going to say yes, aren't you? I know you're going to say yes because I asked you in the kitchen. And yes. Yes. I oh, do want a cup well, of tea. Yeah, right. Terrific. Well, here we are. I'll... I didn't have time to have a coffee, so maybe this no, will make me more. Well, you have, people have to hear this so it's part of the ritual. There are people who actually complain if they don't hear the tea being poured. I know you find that hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> um, got, well, There's people at home pouring cups of tea simultaneously. Right. Well, no, there are people who actually tell me they have to run to the toilet once we start pouring it, which is interesting, uh, once they hear the, the splash. Anyway, there you are. Um, so that's the teapot. Now, a couple of things. Before we go, we'll go to um, we'll go to Amelia fairly shortly, but a few things just to talk about. We Probably toward the end of the show, we're going to have time to talk about other things as well, because, as I say, we couldn't get on to Patty this morning. But um, here's a headline... Well, I'll ask you both so if you can. If, you know, it's a difficult question. This comes out of the Financial Times, and the headline question. I don't think we probably no need to even read on the story. Actually, the headline question is why people are turning against business. Um, anyone? Can anyone think of a possibility yeah, around yeah. that somewhere? Uh, it's, it's hard to believe that that could be happening, isn't it? Um, I'm curious about what yeah. the answer to the question is in, in there. I didn't bother to read on. I, must right. <laughs> they, they, I think they blame globalisation or something, but, I, well, it's the usual usual suspects uh, telling us why. But anyway, I thought it was just an interesting question. I mean, I imagine we'd come up with a quite different solution. Um, I've got to change my glasses to the ones that are actually broken, which is very clever. Um, now... The the um, last weekend, and um, you're both young people, of course. We know that young people came out and were influential in the vote in Britain, uh, coming out supporting Jeremy Corbyn uh, over there. And he turned up at the Glastonbury Festival last weekend and sort of got a rock star reception, they say. 
And he, he said to the young people, but what was even more inspiring was the number of young people who got involved for the very first time because they were fed up with being denigrated, fed up with being told they don't matter, and fed up with being told they never participate. And that politics that got out of the box isn't going back into the box. Um, he said he also supported obviously support of uh, environmental causes. He said there is only one planet. Not even Donald Trump believes there is another planet somewhere else. Although that's questionable, perhaps mm-hmm. Donald might. Um, but uh, I thought that was just interesting. But but then here's another question for you: An 18-year-old Hannah, uh, just no second name given, Hannah. Um, she commented, and I want you to guess where her politics might lie. Uh, Hannah said, but not every young person was won over. It's very smart to target our age with tuition fees. He's targeting targeting the naive of our generation. Um, mm. Anyone want to take a stab at where Hannah's politics lie? Any? Yeah, well, she uh, obviously wasn't offered a free education, was she? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, she probably can afford. I imagine she can afford an education. So. I saw um, <laughs> some footage of Corbyn at Glastonbury, and it was... Incredible. I even, I mean, he's a politician, but he's quite retiring, I think, from what I understand. He didn't want to really take that position. And then he was standing in front of a crowd that was just huge, like um, unthinkably big, like for rock star type of things. Well, it says there he got a rock star reception in that story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, um, well, it's interesting. And and also, because he's not, I mean, his politics were terrific. And we mentioned here, we when his manifesto was leaked, and they said, isn't it terrible? This must bring his his cause down because his manifesto's been leaked and it's so awful. And Mandy might remember, we went through it item by item. We couldn't find one thing we disagree with. Mm. Absolutely nothing. Wow. What, the Tories are sided with the DUP now. They, yeah. Pretty wonder, scary. wonder if Theresa's a bit upset about calling the election by now. Anyway, so, um, so. yeah, but then just to back that up, there was a think piece, so-called think piece, in the Financial Review last Wednesday by a bloke called Nick Dyronfirth, who's with the John Curtin Research Centre, which is sort of an ALP think tank body. But he comes out... And, and says that the ALP shouldn't seek lessons from Corbyn uh, because, um, well, because it shouldn't, because he's too left-wing. In fact, he, he calls him, he uses some term about his left-wingism that, uh, that uh, hard-left, he calls him hard-left leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and one, one suspects that Dirrenfurt, therefore, is very much in the uh, Tony Blair-type political situation uh, vis-a-vis Australia. But he does make a point that what the uh, what you need and um, to to win people for the ALP to win, um, two of the things he, of the four points he raises are define the battleground of politics on your own terms, taking policy risks and accentuating the differences with one's opponent, and focus on issues pertaining to economic security and inequality, especially for voters in outer urban and regional seats. Now I would have thought they were two things that Corbyn, whom he says they shouldn't follow, did. I think Corbyn did um, take risks, accentuate the differences. Uh, he, he focused on economic security and inequality. Uh, but uh, And indeed, he, he says the Labor Party, of course, will do that. And, uh, well, I think from our point of view, it's very much wait and see, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Yes, yes. You can all imagine Bill Shorten running around and uh, being another Jeremy Corbyn. He'd love to be, wouldn't he? Mm. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. And I mean, sure. Corbyn really isn't a rapid socialist anyway, really, yeah. but he's, he's a very good left-wing parliamentary Democrat. And the, yeah. he seems to have consistently applied his values to his roles in politics, and so his values oriented rather than um, poll-driven or yes, popularity-driven, yes, yes. which people respond to, I think. He doesn't come across as a politician who's totally ambitious, but as one who um, who actually does believe in something, which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is in politics, of course, a total rarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine that someone believing in something in politics. Um, now, this will appreciate. Um, well, I know. I hope you're not a dull bludger, Andy, and I hope you're not a dull bludger. Um, no, no, but um, anyway. Um, Maybe Meg might be it. I don't know. But uh, the it says the average Australian would have to work for fourteen years. This is a, this is a, this is a Herald Sun bit of the week because you know their, their emphasis. Great little story. Learners crush lifters. No, sorry, leaners. It was leaners and it was hockey's term, wasn't it? Leaners crush lifters. 
The average Australian would have to work for 14 years to pay for the 220000 lifetime welfare bill of a doll bludger who refuses to try for a job. Now, I would have thought 220000 14 years, they're not getting much pay, but, uh, mm. but anyway. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to have to cough. Um, the Herald Sun can reveal more than 37,000 welfare recipients are in the government's crosshairs for failing to meet requirements. But And Dole Bludge is, of course, used in a news story, uh, is very objective reporting anyway mm. in the first place, but then the Herald Sun's famous for objective reporting. Uh, somehow you add up, it turns out you add up the, all the people on welfare whom they claim are Dole Bludges, and that comes to 14 years' pay because you add, you multiply it all out, etc. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, they, but it, it's just the whole emphasis of the story anyway. Uh, and most of the people they claim are dole bludgers are young, and one can probably understand that because uh, it's difficult to get a job uh, for a start, and you yeah. probably get sick of looking for work, and, and job insecurity is so much. I mean, in my generation, people did start life in a job and you sort of had a career I was a journalist and you worked and you were pretty secure until Murdoch gave me the flick of yeah, course right. but that's beside yeah. the point but uh, the uh, so mine ended up being a bit insecure let's put it fairly but but nonetheless um, these days I imagine people under 35 um, don't feel very secure either about getting a job or once they get one of keeping it or staying in that career because it keeps changing and we're told workers have to keep retraining themselves. Mm. Mm. There's not a there's not a real mm. emphasis on investing in in staff and in, especially when there's a lot of casualization so you can be just lose your shifts and then um, have to be looking for another job somewhere else. Yeah. 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 So I I don't know that that's not that un, that's, that's quite understandable but the Herald Sun anyways picked it up and it's you know it's it'll sort out these dull bludges let me tell you that. And, but on the good, on the positive side of that, just last week the pollies gave themselves a wage rise, so that's pretty good. Their wage rise does seem to exceed the amount that the lowest of low paid got recently in that hearing, uh, where they said it would ruin the country if they got it. But apparently it won't ruin the country, thanks to the po- or the pollies won't ruin the country because they're only there to help us all. That's what What's Turnbull on? Ten grand a year now. Yeah. I uh, mean, ten grand a week, Turnbull's making, I think I read. Is he? Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all can't wait. Hang on every word. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we, let's not comment. We won't. We'll go to the first guest because I don't think we want to comment too much about that um, terrible fire in London. But, I mean, I think everyone's you know, concluding what the real situation is, that they did things on the cheap and that's what capitalism's all about. And the ultimate response. And now they're finding going every, every block they go through in Britain, uh, they've they find the same problem. Yeah, but then the working class can burn, I suppose. It's scary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't feel too comfortable living in one of them. No, not at all, but it's it's quite tragic, but it's a tragic result of the economic system we live in, I guess. Okay, well, let's let's move on to uh, our first guest and we'll come back and talk to uh, Amelia Young about... Hardwood and, uh, and, uh, and sustainability. And, and in fact, um, coming from Tasmania, of course, you've had good experience with forests and things over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of... I mean, I grew up with that um, front and centre in my life and yes. seeing people like Bob Brown and um, Christine Milne and um, other speakers at rallies and things like that. So, yeah, it's been a long-standing issue and plantations have been put as a solution and... Mm. Some people feel differently about that when farmland is turned into plantation land. Yes, and of course we said, as we said to you yesterday, um, for many years, Guns was the government of Tasmania. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful company, of course. <laughs> 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 All right, look, we'll take a break, come back. We're going to talk, let's talk sense. We'll talk to Amelia. Okay, and uh, on the line we have Amelia Young, who's with the um, with the uh, Wilderness Society, and Amelia um, is going to talk to us about a, a plan to create a Great Forest National Park. But firstly, and it's related to that anyway, uh, Amelia, down in, we've been hearing from Gippsland lately about this sustainable hardwood company, and we've always had questions about the sustainable bit of that title. Is the company, in fact, only harvesting sustainable timber? Hi, good morning. No, absolutely not. No. This company deals... Oh, by the way, I've got, just to let you know, I've got Meg Kimber in the studio with me as well, and she's come up from Tasmania, so she knows a bit about some of this stuff as well. So, uh, yeah. Sure, great. Hi there, Meg. Hello. 
Um, no, the Austra- so-called Australian sustainable hardwoods is a bit of a misnomer because, of course, the wood that they deal in is anything but sustainable. They mill a species of timber called mountain ash. Its Latin name is Eucalyptus regnans. And this timber is actually internationally listed on the IUCN list, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, as critically endangered. So this mill at Hayfield is milling a critically endangered species of timber. The whole mountain ash ecosystem itself is critically endangered and the science shows that the ecosystem itself is at risk of collapse due to the decades of overlogging and the very poor management but also, of course, due to the impacts of particularly the 2009 bushfires. Mm. Yeah, the company the company's now carrying on about the fact that it needs more wood and the government's only offering it a much smaller amount. Uh, even what it's being offered, is that still um, unsustainable timber? Yes, it is. It's internationally listed as critically endangered, so it's like a sawmill milling teak or mahogany or ebony. This is very, very precious wood. And the price point that is set on it does not reflect its scarcity or its rarity or indeed the level of endangerment that it's under. Mm. And of course, there's a whole lot of social uh, and economic benefits for leaving these forests standing as well. These forests are among the most carbon dense anywhere on the planet. And every time they're logged, we're making climate change worse but we're also removing the only reliable, proven and safe technology that we have available to us to draw down the excessive carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is a critical part of tackling the climate challenge, of course. Weren't they informed some years ago, in fact, that this was going to happen, that they're going to have to accept lower numbers of trees in the future and they they should have been adapting to that in in their plans? That's absolutely right, Kevin. So there's a bit of a sorry history to this sawmill, actually. It's been around for quite some decades, uh, but more recently it was owned by guns out of Tasmania, which Meg Meg would know a lot about. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) We we mentioned guns just before the break, actually, yeah. Did you? There you go, (laughs) popping up everywhere. And guns bought this Hayfield sawmill as part of their expansion onto mainland Australia. But, of course, as many of your listeners will know, guns ran into serious trouble and actually eventually collapsed. And this facility, the Hayfield sawmill, was then floating around not open um, and not owned. It was in liquidation for a number of years before the current owners bought it from guns. And yes, when the current owners, the Hermel Group, bought this facility, they knew that there was going to be less wood available in the future. Yet they bought the mill anyway and rapidly moved to instituting a double shift and increased the volumes of wood that they were processing which seems a very unwise business decision when the forest managers, government logging agency Vic Forest, are even forecasting a decline in the availability of ash saw log. Mm-hmm. Okay, just thinking of Chig, Meg wanted to comment on that. But but um, over the years, the the state body has been criticised many times for being you know for playing the role of the of the forest industry itself and allowing all this to happen. Have they been improving at all, or are they still um, very much playing the game for the for the wood, for the, the chainsaws, effectively? Well, we're still very concerned about Vic Forest logging operations. Just for listeners who may not know, Vic Forest is the state government logging agency, and they manage state forests, which are owned by all Victorians on behalf of Victorians, and the Department of Environment sort of leases the state forests that are owned by us to Vic Forest who logs them on our behalf. And we're concerned about Vic Forest logging operations because they're still targeting endangered species of timber. They're still logging in endangered species habitat. Only this week, a koala was found dead in one of Vic Forest logging operations in the Acheron Valley, just north of Waterton. So we're very concerned about big forest logging and we haven't seen the kinds of improvements that we would like to see. Part of the problem is, as I explained, they're uh, empowered by successive state governments to log these forests on our behalf. But really what we need is an agency that can manage these forests for the full range of forest values. I mentioned earlier that these forests are important carbon stores. 
they're also Melbourne's watershed. So all of our drinking water comes out of these forests and every time they're logged, the quality and quantity of water that these forests produce for us to consume decreases and the quality is reduced. The water's made dirtier. But if Vic Forest or another agency was empowered to manage these forests for these ecosystem services, carbon, water, clean air, uh, we might have a different outcome and we might be moving closer towards uh, sustainable forest management. Yes, licensed to um, to log the forest. You'd rather wish they were licensed to not log the forest, splitting it infinitive, wouldn't you? Rather, correct. <laughs> yeah, um, the the company um, the company, of course, having hit the brick wall while while we're um, while we're still on this company, it also strikes me that it's interesting that whenever a company like this hits the wall, and the same thing's happening in in Gippsland with the Hazelwood closure, that somehow. Uh, the media in particular, particularly the Murdoch media, but also there are expectations by the companies themselves that somehow the government now should start to pick up the costs um, of, of their um, of their moving on. Yes, this kind of uh, approach and this kind of behaviour is something that we've seen from the native forest logging industry for decades. They've always been lining up for handouts and the extent of subsidies, whether it's taxpayer subsidies or legislative subsidies or other kinds of cosy arrangements, has been quite extraordinary and continues to be quite extraordinary. So we weren't really surprised on the one hand to see that actually when the business began to flounder and to run into some difficulties, which as you mentioned, they knew were coming, they turned to the government and insisted on a bailout. Of course, we think that um, workers who face employment change need to absolutely be supported through those employment changes and the government needs to be responsible for transitioning workers and supporting their families when unsustainable industries need to change, as we've seen with the coal sector Mm. and as we're seeing now with the native forest logging sector as well. It's a great opportunity to transition from an old economy to a new economy and that's really where the Great Forest National Park comes in because it will create 760 new full-time jobs in the region and these are sustainable permanent jobs. Yeah, we'll move on to that very shortly. We're talking to Amelia Young from um, the Wilderness Society. Amelia, also, there's an irony here, I think, just just commenting on the media coverage, because at the, at the start they were saying, look, the government has a responsibility to find a solution for all these workers who have been displaced in Gippsland, and now, more recently, they're starting to complain about the cost of the public purse of all that. So they can't really have it both ways, can they? Well, no, and perhaps the thing to complain about is the cost to the public purse of ongoing native forest logging. Yes. (laughs) So as if it wasn't bad enough that Vic Forest logs our forests on our behalf and destroys these ecosystems and drives wildlife to extinction, we're actually paying for the so-called privilege of having this happen. Every year, Victorian taxpayers subsidise this industry. So that's the real pressure on the public purse that I'd like to see come to an end. Yeah, now the National Park you're talking about, just just give us the background of that and why you're pushing it. So the Great Forest National Park is a really exciting and optimistic proposal for protecting these forests right on Melbourne's doorstep. We'd like to see uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares of state forest added to the protected area estate for a whole range of environmental reasons, but importantly also for social and economic reasons as well. Across this region, which just for the listeners is approximately King Lake across up to Lake Eildon, down south through Marysville and Healesville, south to Warburton, through Powelltown and out to Mount Baubor. Across this region, there's a real need to reinvigorate and restore regional economies, particularly post the 2009 bushfires. And keeping our forests intact is a terrific way to do this because tourists come to visit intact forests. They come from all over the world to visit these forests. The mountain ash are the tallest flowering plant on earth and this is an amazing asset that we're still logging to manufacture copy paper. The Great Forest National Park is really about a better way for this ecosystem but a better way for people and regional communities as well. Earlier this year, we released some research that was conducted by the NAUS Group, which showed that not only will the Great Forest National Park create an additional 760 new full-time jobs, at least, 
It will also attract an additional 400,000 visitors from all around the world to this region, which is just an hour from the CBD of Melbourne. And of course, visitors, when they come to these places, spend money on a whole range of different businesses and money in the regional communities while they're visiting there. And we found through this research that the Great Forest National Park will return an additional $71 million to the economy every single year. And that stands in stark contrast to the losses which run into the tens of millions of dollars every year through native forest logging. And that doesn't even include the losses from the lost water value to agriculture and to people in Melbourne or the lost value to potential tourism as well. Mm. So how are you conducting this campaign? So we've been promoting the Great Forest National Park through branding it and empowering people to understand and love it. We've been teaching communities and stakeholders right across Victoria about the value of this proposal. We've had an astounding uh, uh, response from Victorians. Uh, polling before the 2014 state election showed that nine out of ten Victorians wanted to see the Great Forest National Park created. And more recently, that polling has um, been, those results have been borne out with one in two Victorians in some key electoral seats saying they want to see the Great Forest National Park created. But also, interestingly, the polling shows that Victorians in regional Victoria, so places like Morwell, the seat of Morwell and Gippsland, they want to see uh, protected areas created and, importantly, they want to see industry reform. So uh, more than 60% of voters in Morwell wanted to see the government support Australian paper to move out of native forests for manufacturing products like Reflex and into the existing plantation estate. Mm. It's always said that people like, um, like well, the timber workers who, who could lose, who will lose their jobs over this, and the and the coal mining people, the people who worked in the power station, um, they're not the sort of people who can do the jobs that are created uh, by these alternatives. What's your response to that? Well, of course, we don't expect native forest loggers to become baristas and to be making up beds in bed and breakfast. <laughs> That's ridiculous. The Great Forest National Park will have hundreds of jobs in natural resource management. We need experienced and skilled workers who are able to operate in the bush to help restore this landscape, in fact. It's been so heavily overlogged and it's also been so affected by bushfire that there's a real job to ecologically restore these forests and support the flourishing of biodiversity. So workers who have, have the skills to uh, restore the bush and be working in the bush are necessary for restoring the landscape. In creating a Great Forest National Park, we need to make sure that there are, is enough money but also enough people for the effective care and management of the Great Forest National Park. This is about bringing people into the landscape and supporting people to be in the landscape, whether that's through visitation or whether it's actually through people being able to stay living and working in regional communities and managing the park. So jobs around maintaining park infrastructure, managing <clears throat> for an ecological fire regime, managing for biodiversity values like water and carbon. These are all jobs that are more easily translatable. Yeah, there seems to be an emphasis um, by those who, who want to do other things to to stress the value of the work and the, the income and the job value of, of the polluting industry, but not look at the benefits of not polluting. I mean, a classic example at the moment is this latest report on the Barrier Reef about what its value is, and it, it would seem to exceed any Adani mine by billions of dollars, and yet they put the emphasis on what Adani can do for jobs and investment and all the crap. Mm. Yes, change can be very frightening. And I think that that's part of what we're experiencing in, in relation to industries that are facing change, like coal and native forest logging. I think uh, jobs that are existing now uh, that have real people working in them um, that need to change is a very complex challenge that needs to be carefully thought through and well managed. In the case of Adani, these aren't jobs that even exist no, yet, no. Um, so let's not create them, which I think suspect is your point around um, let's look towards making creating jobs that are sustainable and will be able to exist into the long term. Mm. 
Mm. These jobs in the native forest logging sector in Victoria aren't sustainable and cannot continue for years to come anyway. So we need to support the workers to uh, change into uh, more sustainable jobs now before it's too late. This is an industry that's facing inevitable change. So the opportunity and the moment to make sure that that change is orderly and well managed is right now, in fact. You know, I can't imagine international tourists flocking out to the Adani mine to dive in and enjoy its beauty or that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> that's right. No, but, uh, and yet, you know, that, as I say, that's where the emphasis lies. So where are you taking it from here now, this this campaign? So we've been participating in some roundtable negotiations that the Andrews State Government established. Um, they Those negotiations involved conservation groups the industry and the CFMEU, the union with membership in this industry. Uh, Towards the end of last year, it became apparent to us all that we needed some assistance from government to try and resolve this dispute and reach a durable long-term outcome. And that's really no surprise because, of course, many of your listeners will be familiar with this issue. This is a deeply entrenched conflict that has been running for decades now. So we asked for some help around Christmas time and then this Hayfield sawmill situation uh, blew up where the Hayfield sawmill was re-advised by Big Forest that they wouldn't be getting similar, very high and unsustainable supply of wood from the mountain ash forest. And their wood supply agreement, their contract for wood actually runs out in a few days now at the end of June. So since then, we've been continuing to advocate across Parliament, but also in the community and importantly in the business sector as well for the creation of the Great Forest National Park. And we'll continue to do that over the coming weeks and months while we also keep an eye on the logging operations and minimise the damage on a daily and a weekly basis as best we can. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, perhaps we'll leave it. Although perhaps there's one other thing. I mean, there, another complication is the fact that um, the, well, you mentioned the CFMEU's involved, the Forest Division's involved in your discussions, which is interesting because they, they've often been a barrier to uh, trying to do something about stopping logging in these forests, which is a bit unfortunate given we at this station support trade unions, but it's, it's a reality. Yes, that's right. Um, There's no bones about it. In the lead-up to the 2014 state election, the then Labor opposition was very interested and on track to declare that they would create the Great Forest National Park if elected. But the union intervened and said, no, you won't do that, not without our involvement. And that's part of the reason that we ended up with a roundtable negotiation, which from the Wilderness Society's perspective was a good opportunity because you'll get a better outcome for nature, but also a better outcome for people and communities if you can reach a negotiated durable solution. Um, But that intervention that you mention uh, and that influence is certainly something that's a challenge and a problem for delivering security for threatened wildlife in these forests, but also for delivering the Great Forest National Park. Yeah, I was involved with Earthworker in its early days, and it's doing good work now, but in its early days, um, I was trying to get the environment and and union movement together, and it's it's a damn good objective. Uh, But the big barrier in those days was the forestry division. I don't think they were were amalgamated then, but the the forest union at that time was a real barrier to to Earthworker really being able to get those forces together. Yes, I remember that, and that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, and well... Uh, well, they're, they're sitting down at the table now. How, are, are, there, are there better signs at this stage that they're coming along a bit? Well, we were sitting down at the table for the first two years of this office, but we've not, there's not a table to sit around anymore because <laughs> Hayfield has broken ranks right. and sought to unilaterally satisfy their own interests and outcomes for themselves regardless of any other interests. That's what we've seen in the first six months of this year. So it's a serious challenge for the Andrews government. On the one hand, there's a lot of employment pressure in the Latrobe Valley and the Gippsland region. There's a mountain ash forest that is at risk of collapse and critically endangered, which cannot continue to supply the wood. There's a huge groundswell of support for the Great Forest National Park proposal. And we've also got wildlife facing extinction and they'll have a fighting chance of beating extinction if the Great Forest National Park is created. Yeah, I suppose you gave a fair bit of consideration to Barnaby Joyce's solution to the whole problem, which was, of course, to open up the forest completely and to uh, and chainsaw the lot and also remove the threatened species um, 
uh, tag on the um, on the lead beater possum. Yeah, that's right. He's, so he's, a, a, he's a deep thinker, that barnacle, isn't he? Yeah, isn't he what? I mean, of course, the industry conveniently wants to blame the Leadbeater's possum for its woes. The reality is that due to the decades of overlogging and the impacts of bushfire, the wood has simply run out. And even if industry was allowed to remove the critically endangered uh, status of the Leadbeater's possum and knowingly log that animal to extinction by logging in its forest habitat, they wouldn't get enough wood to keep the doors open at Hayfield, let alone anywhere else. The uh, Vic Forest has over a million and a half hectares of state forest to manage and log, and as a result of the Leadbeater's possum prescriptions, the ones that Barnaby is talking about removing, only between two and 3,000 hectares has been set aside for that species, for that mm. Leadbeater's possum. So it's an absolute nonsense to suggest that removing those buffers and delisting the possum will solve the industry's woes. This is an industry in crisis. The writing's been on the wall for decades and it hasn't been able to reform itself. So now we see situations like the Hayfield sawmill face enclosure. Yeah. Amelia, it's a problem, of course, the environment movement faces that somehow... Uh, those in control consider the environment should only be taken into consideration if it doesn't actually cost profit. And once it costs profit, then it must come second. That's that's the, that's always been the case, hasn't it? Yes, but this is where there's a golden opportunity in relation to these forests as well. The carbon value of the carbon stored in these forests and the water value of the water produced by these forests far exceeds any profit, so-called profit, that might be made by logging these forests for wood chips and thorn timber. Of course, 90% of the wood that's pulled out of these forests is wood chipped for pulp to manufacture mm. paper. So that's a low-value product. And this is, uh, this is magnificent wood, and yet it's being used just for that. That's right, yes. And then if we added in the tourism benefits of keeping these forests intact, we have a series of accounts that actually show the profit from managing these forests for water, carbon and tourism far outweighs managing these forests for wood chips. Mm. Meg, did you have a comment at this stage from your Tasmanian experience, etc.? Yeah, I was thinking about um, what we went through in Tassie with guns and, and um, in particular the reason that they ultimately um, folded, which was incomprehensible at some stages considering the power that they wielded in that state. Um, politically and um, in terms of the, how they ran their business. And um, ultimately, I think, you know, there was a lot of factors, but community um, gathering together and having their voices heard and um, making al- alliances and having putting forward what they wanted for their area was the reason that the pulp mill, which was going to be devastating for the state and similarly a lot of the time they were talking about how the the um, business effects and how so many jobs would be created but all the people in that area were up in arms because all of their existing businesses would be affected and tourism in Tasmania so um, the way that that community came together and made a change is really something to keep in mind, in particular about this area. I think you know the fact that businesses are on board in that area, that that the communities are on board in that area, that makes um, makes it possible for this to happen. And I think it makes so much sense. It's 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 crazy to think that that they'd keep logging these profits and making a loss when a different way is possible. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, Mary, any comment on that yourself? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the support of local businesses, Meg, because one of the um, elements of our campaign has been to very actively build support from businesses in the region as Mm. well as support from businesses in Melbourne itself. And the response from businesses in the region has been overwhelming. Everybody from the butcher and the hairdresser of the main street in Healdsville through to some of the biggest wineries in the region are signing on and publicly expressing their support for the Great Forest National Park. Mm. And that's coupled also by the I Support campaign, which some of your listeners may have seen on the Great Forest National Park Facebook page, where we've had a huge number, hundreds and hundreds of celebrities come on board saying they support the creation of the Great Forest National Park. And a really diverse range of people. Nick Cave has come out. Dave Lehman has come out in support. We have Robin Lawley, the model, coming out in support. Uh, and Netball is just about to come on board. So this uh, proposal, which I earlier described as optimistic and exciting, is really capturing the imagination, not just of 
environmentalists and people who care about wildlife, but also from the local community, businesses in the region, and opinion leaders and thought makers as well. Mm. Excellent. Well, that's not a bad note to finish up on. But is there somewhere people can go then? Obviously, you just mentioned it, really. But who who want to get know more or get involved in the campaign? The Great Forest National Park website is a fantastic space to go and find out more. There's a series of short videos on there, the pieces of research. The NAUS report that I mentioned earlier that talks about jobs and economics is on that website. We also have the rationale for the park. So we have a report that sets out how the proposed boundaries were derived. We actually did quite a few years of deep work with the academic community, local conservation groups, uh, and also um, throughout the whole time we're having dialogue with traditional owner groups for whose land we are proposing tenure change because, of course, it's critical that the rights and aspirations of traditional owners are not only understood but are advocated for as we move through this process of tenure change, which is a decision the state government can make. So that's an excellent resource that's on the Great Forest National Park website itself, and I'd really encourage everyone who's on Facebook to have a look at the Great Forest National Park Facebook page. And in terms of taking action for the park, get in touch with your local MP. We're 18 months out from a state election and out of the Wilderness Society Campaign Centre at the moment, we're running a series of community calling events encouraging people to directly contact their local member of parliament about creating the Great Forest National Park. All right, and I notice the stuff is also signed by Friends of the Earth, so there's a whole body group of bodies involved fighting this one at the moment. That's right. At the moment, the Wilderness Society and Friends of the Earth have actually come together to jointly letterbox 28,000 households in Jane Garrett's electorate of Brunswick. Jane Garrett came out in support of the jobs at the Hayfield Sawmill, which is absolutely crazy given how unsustainable those jobs are. Um, and so we have taken on the task of letterboxing every single household in her electorate. And I'm thrilled to say that almost 200 volunteers have already helped us letterbox more than 22,000 households in only a couple of weeks. And that's just evidence of how much people love this park and want to see it created. Yeah, I went to the Van Gogh exhibition yesterday with a woman who tells me she's going to be uh, letterboxing for you next weekend. So there you are. It's, it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Amelia, look, thanks for your time this morning. We've taken a fair bit of time, but it's been worth talking about for sure. Terrific. Thanks okay. for the opportunity. Right, yeah, thanks day. a lot. Okay, Amelia Young there from the Wilderness Society, and, um, well, it's, it, let's hope it succeeds. Mm. <clears throat> well, mm. I'm an optimist, actually, yes. because, <laughs> honestly, it makes so much sense. I just, it's incomprehensible to me how it's just made this situation has continued where companies that don't make any money somehow have this agenda where they're saying that this is all about jobs, it's all about the economy, and they're really being subsidised by the by right. government. We can make a profit if the government pays it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how capitalism is meant to work, right? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> of course it is. Depends what kind of company you have. It's, yeah. it's capitalist form of socialism or something. <laughs> yeah. Andy, any thoughts on that at all? You're sitting there and oh, just I'm pressing just buttons? And... wrote down some facts, just, you know, yeah, taking it in myself. Right. Like, I'm never shocked anymore, so <laughs> I'm just, you know. <laughs> no. Trying to put it together in my head. We'll have to work on trying to shock you then on this stage. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll work on that. Take we got, a bit doing now, that, yeah. we got a note from a listener, Nathan from Northcote. Um, read our comment about Murdoch and the dole bludgers costing two twenty thousand each and all that crap. Um, he's asked us to read two sentences. One, this financial year, $110 million was extracted by the Murdoch family from Australian companies. We're going to... Um, I'm not sure where these are coming from, but I'll take his word for it. Um, I'll take his word more than I would for Murdoch's, I suspect. And in almost two decades, a billion dollars was extracted by the Murdoch family from Australian companies, effectively paying no tax, which um, that's so, of course, Murdoch. Uh, and he still, whenever they ask him to pay tax, he still runs off to the courts and complains that they actually want him to pay something. It's pretty awful. Um, we'll take a break, wander back and, um, and round out the program. Okay, back on air, and um, just on uh, that point we made about the Barrier Reef, by the way, that report says it's worth, I think it's $56 billion um, as an asset uh, because of you know, all sorts of things, and it's, it's, it's like the banks is too big to fail. 
And um, that was by Deloitte Access Economics. So it's no left-wing think tank. They're one of the big, um, one of the big accounting companies of the world that work for capitalism, and yet they've come up with that. And I would have thought that fifty-six billion and all the jobs it creates in tourism, etc., would far exceed any benefits from Adani, even if you consider there are any benefits in, in mining more coal and destroying the Barrier Reef. Yeah. Mm, I think this is the thing. Um, mm. When I was talking before about the pulp mill in um, Tassie and that it didn't happen and it was just seemed like a fait accompli, similar to the Adani mine, it was supported by the government and it looked like a really powerful company. But um, people were outraged about it and so I think the thing is if, if anyone's listening and they are outraged, do anything that you can. Do something like get engaged and get involved because if you're outraged and, and you don't do anything, nobody knows. So, But when you yeah. join together with other people who think this is wrong and it has to change, it actually can make change, change happen. Can yeah. change, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think, I think in, in our society, particularly during the period when neoliberalism was absolutely rampant and it still is pretty much, but I think a lot of people just thought they really were angry, but they couldn't do much about it. They were, they were powerless, and I think I hope that feeling's lifting and people now feel more powerful. And there are things happening around the world that indicate people getting up can, can achieve things. And uh, So maybe, yeah. But this is a good story, um, I would have thought, um, and it's, it's encouraging news for workers. Um, the, the Business Council of Australia, Grant King, who's taken over recently as its new head, new president, he was um, with one of the big resource companies, I can't think which one now, uh, before he went off to the Business Council. But um, Grant um, says business would love to pay workers more but can only do so if productivity and profits improve. So it's it's a bit of a pity but because you know, they're complaining on one hand that the, the low, low wages are one of the problems in our society and wage growth is so slow. And as we kept saying on this program, well, we think there's a fairly simple solution to that. Um, but they don't seem to see it. Um, he warned globalisation and the rapid encroach of technological disruption and offshore competition meant businesses were unable to simply pay for wage rises by lift, by lifting prices because prices are going up even slower than wages, he says, so it's really hurting. So it's the bosses who are being hurt, unfortunately. But um, he, he made this at some, some conference this week. Um, he he said that uh, doctor or actually this arose out of the fact that um, that um, Doctor Lowe, Doctor Phil Lowe, who's the central bank governor, the reserve central bank reserve bank governor, had suggested that wages workers should fight for higher wages at the moment, which came as a bit of bolt for the blue to the poor old capitalists. Um, but he said the suggestion Lowe was putting the um, <laughs> what Lowe was doing was putting the horse before the cart. Now, I don't know what he meant by that because I would have thought that that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? The horse should be before the cart. Um, that's, know, apparently, that, I think that's yeah, how it works. Yeah, getting yeah. it mixed up is called the cart before the horse. But anyway, he said the horse <laughs> before the cart, and I thought, well, that's probably the way it ought to be. So I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and uh, King said ongoing disinflationary pressures were keeping the cost of labour high relative to prices, and um, that's that's Grant's comment, of course. But he does say, and I think this this shows what a great man he is. Um, he he said they'd just love to be able to pay higher wages, but they simply can't. We're not unilaterally able to decide to pay more. We operate in a global environment, but oh, isn't that awful? Because he he really acknowledges they'd love to be able to pay higher wages if they could. And I think that's, well, that's very big that's of him. sweet. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it does. It gives us a bit of confidence. In the meantime, though, the government is now um, putting forward legislation, fast-tracking legislation is the term used in the Financial Review, um, to allow them to deregister the CFMEU. And um, they say that the, the Fair Work Act already allows courts to put a union into administration if it is dysfunctional with the health services union, that, that particular thing happening. But however, the Turnbull government believes that the provision is inefficient, ineffective, in part because the court cannot make such orders unless it is satisfied it would not do substantial injustice to the organisation or any member of the organisation. The government would instead introduce a lower threshold and new provisions so unions could be put into administration if they are, quote, no longer serve in the interests of their members, as is the case with companies under the corporation law. Now, 
once the act goes through, it'll be up to Macalia Cash and Malcolm Turnbull and um, all those people in the Liberal Party to decide if the CFMEU is acting in the interests of its members. And I would have thought they would always say it is not never acting in the interest of its members. Mm. Um, so uh, that seems to me to be uh, absolute uh, carte blanche for them to just step in and knock it off. But it, it's, it's quite serious, and I think, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully people will fight it. But uh, they're, they're now moving into... They're clearly moving in to get the union out of the way, mm. um, which, is, um, which is really, uh, really dangerous and... Uh, and, you know, but most of the things for which that union ever gets prosecuted, and it gets prosecuted because of laws they brought in that make it impossible to be a union, in fact, um, since the 96 Reith legislation backed up by work choices and then not so backed up by Labor not really getting rid of work choices. And uh, so the law, laws, things unions could do quite legally before 1996 and then before work choices are now deemed illegal, and so you're breaking the law uh, and deemed to be some sort of thuggy, thuggish mob, particularly if, say, you fight for... Well, a good example would be if, 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 a, if a worker, and it happens regularly, a worker gets injured or, or dies on a building site, and if the workers walk out and say, we're not going back until that's fixed up, then the illegal party are the workers who walk out over the death of their colleague or the injury to their colleague. Um, the... Mm. the so, you know, it, it, the law is just so hope, hopelessly one-sided. Um, related to that, um, the government, the Queensland government, um, believe it or not, is bringing in a law about labour hire firms because we know that they rip off, you know, often when you hear rip off of workers, it's labour hire companies who are, who are the culprits. And interestingly enough, um, they're bringing this in and saying that uh, that they'll um, they have to register, etc., and they're hoping that by registering and doing all sorts of things that and then and then inspectors can walk in any time to make sure they're observing the law. Uh, but a lot of other companies, BHP Billiton, for instance, has submitted an in, a, a submission saying that it went beyond the labour hire industry to cover secondment and intra-business arrangements where companies supply labour to their related entities. If left unchanged, the bill could result in the regulation of employment relations more generally. Um, the in train industry group, our old mate Innes Willock, said it would disrupt a vast array of business contracts and services. The bill would also impede the legitimate outsourcing of business operations by companies in numerous industries. And it goes on and on with them all complaining. Now, the Queensland Council of Unions said it presumed labour hire operators would pass on the extra cost, but the union movement makes no apology, however, for making this form of employment in any way more expensive to the end user, who in many cases would otherwise be the employer, because we know they, they make workers contractors, yep. Um, it noted the expansion of labour hire had occurred as a means of reducing labour costs, etc., and ripping off workers, essentially. And I would have thought all those people complaining like BHP and Inox, um, you're only going to get nabbed if you're actually breaking the law. So what are they worried about? As long as they observe the law and pay workers a fair wage, they shouldn't be complaining. They must, they're only complaining, presumably, because they think, well, it's going to stop us ripping off. That, oh, that's my awful interpretation. I must be wrong, mustn't I? I don't know. Things have gone really out of hand in corporate, um, the corporate world. I noticed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's the program today. It's nine fifty-eight. We we only had one guest, but we've managed to rape on about a number of things. Um, thanks to Andy for doing it. Look, you can take any right, shortly. Right. Meg Kimber, thanks for coming on. And Thank first you. day, will you come back next week? I'd love to. Oh well, okay. Yeah. That's two. Well, it's a yeah, that's really good. It sounds great. <laughs> yes, very good. Um, Meg, look, you're the you're sort of the first day on. So look, thank Andy for doing a wonderful job. And tell Andy, people, you did such an amazing job, and you no, looked so really calm and relaxed the whole time yeah, and, and behind, tell, behind and, the desk. And tell people. People, next week Thank it's you. transport with John McPherson. Next week we're talking about transport with John McPherson. Indeed. Yeah. Cheers.